Thank you, Jesus. I'm just going to step right here real quick and make sure this is on. Okay, glory to God. I'm, uh, I'm not very technologically savvy. Um, I have checks, yeah. <laughs> but uh, people have been trying to teach me <laughs> about the, the wisdom in moving away from checks. Um, which it made sense to me. Um, but Rattle, that song, Rattle. Did you guys hear that song? You hear that song? Just ask the stone that was rolled away from the tomb in the garden what happens when God says live. You know, God said lived when he, live when he raised Jesus from the dead. Jesus is the word made flesh. And when he brought Jesus out of the grave, it isn't just that a man came out of the grave, although a man came out of the grave, but it spoke a word. And what it spoke a word to was to mankind, and the word was live. And it's amazing you played that song, brother, because I'm going to touch on some verses where God says live. <laughs> um, but I love in Ezekiel, God, sa God says, son of man, can these bones live? That's a powerful statement that, that God asks Ezekiel there. You see, because if you read Paul's letter to Timothy, God promised us immortality before the fall of the world. Before death entered the world, God promised us immortality. Amen. He promised us before the fall of the world. You see, something that, happened, something that happened, though, is that when Adam ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the tree that serves with death, it's the tree that serves with death. It's not God that serves with death, yeah. right? It's not that if you eat from the tree, Adam, then I'm going to punish you with death. No, no, no. It's that that tree has a reward in it. And the reward that tree has to give you is death. Yeah. Now... God promised Adam immortality before he ate from the tree. But when he ate from the tree and death entered into the earth and he saw deadness in his body and deadness in his flesh, that deadness that he saw in his body, it gave birth to the carnal mind in him. And do you know what it did? It told him that the promise was void. The promise is void, buddy. And it's void on a couple of reasons. God's taken it back. Lies, indeed, the father of lies. The father of lies wanted nothing more than for man to think the promise was void. But, but not only did, did Adam think the promise was void because he felt like God no longer had loving kindness in his heart towards him. I mean, he was ashamed of his nakedness. He despised himself for his nakedness. He despised himself for the fruit of death that he saw in his life. And he concluded that God also despised him. And that's how the human heart works, right? If you condemn yourself, God is greater than your heart, and you think, and certainly he is. <laughs> I mean, he sees everything. And so if I'm condemning myself, certainly God must be condemning me. You see, that's why the gospel speaks to the heart. God's not trying to be delivered from him condemning you. What he realizes is you'll never be able to stand in his presence if he don't get the condemnation out of your heart. So it's not that he had condemnation for you in his heart, and now the gospel can come and remove that. It's that you had condemnation in your heart, and every time God tried to come towards you, you ran from him. Amen. You see that in Adam, don't you? Yeah. Guess what the word Adam means in Hebrew? Man. Mankind. Adam is a picture of mankind. 
And so God says, my man's got a problem. He doesn't remember my promise. And not only doesn't he remember my promise, but he thinks the death he sees in his body is greater than the promise. He thinks the death he sees in his body has made the promise void. And every time I try to come near to him to tell him the promise isn't made void, to tell him that I only have loving kindness in my heart towards him, every time I try to get close to him, he runs from me. So I got to do something to pluck this condemnation out of his heart. I got to do something to where his heart no longer condemns him in my presence. And that's what God's after with the gospel. He's not after feeling better about you. He's not trying to feel better about you. He's not. You want to know what God feels about you? Behold the resurrected Jesus. Right? And so Adam saw the deadness in his body. He saw death. Death became exalted in his eyes. Death became exalted in his sight. And he thought death was greater than the promise. It's like Abraham, when God comes to Abraham and tells Abraham, I will make you exceedingly fruitful. I will make you the father of many nations. Notice how Abraham thought the deadness in his body was greater than the promise of life. What did he say to God? Did he say, yeah, Lord, you'll give it to me? No, he beheld the death in the world. And he said, what shall you give me, Lord, seeing this deadness in my body and the deadness in Sarah's womb? Seeing I have no heir, how can you give me anything? So when God says to Ezekiel, son of man, can these bones live? <laughs> I get this. Mankind, the answer for mankind was no. How can they live? They're dead. You see, in God, what he did was he came and raised man out of the grave that had the fullness of sin and death on him so that we could see the promise of life, the word of life is greater than the giant of death that we held. What he said was, these guys don't believe in my promise anymore. They think it's void, but they also think death is the greatest thing. They think death is God because death is reigning over them. Death has become their Lord. And every edict that death is speaking has become the word by which they live. Now, we got to conduct an experiment so that our people can see not only is the promise not void, the promise that we made from the beginning before death entered in, but that they can see that our life is greater than death. So what we're going to do, Elohim says to one another, Father, Son, and Spirit, Father, the Son says, I'll come into the earth as a human being. And the Spirit says, I will strengthen you in the inner man, that when death comes upon you, you won't try to clothe yourself with life. And the Father says, and I will come, and I will raise you from the grave. And we'll conduct an experiment in the middle of the great congregation, and we'll take the death that they think is insurmountable. We'll take the death they think that has made the promise void, and we'll put that death right on display, the greatest display of death that there could ever be. And then we'll let it see what death looks like in light of our life. Well, did death come out of the grave or did life? (laughs) You see, and God confirmed or reaffirmed the original promise. Right? Your sin, your death has not changed my heart. I'm not in need of a new heart. You're in need of a new heart. Right? And death has never been greater than my life. Right? And so, son of man, can these bones live? You see, Ezekiel, I, I, 
I don't know that you ever, it's a trick question, isn't it? You ever feel like somebody asked, it's a trick question and you're looking around, I feel like there's a right answer here and I don't know if I know it. <laughs> but I also see that as a picture of the father talking with the son. It says Jesus grew in wisdom and stature, right? He put on a perishable body where he saw death. That death was trying to speak to him as he was growing up. Jesus would have known the scriptures. And Jesus would have had to grow in the knowledge that the promise of life is greater than the death that was in the world. And I could see the father walking with Jesus when he was a little boy, nine, ten years old. Son of man, can these bones live? Mm. <laughs> and then at some point, Jesus, lo, I come in the volume of the book, it is written to me. I am the resurrection and the life. And I am that eternal life, that word of life that was promised from the beginning. I am the promised seed. I am life, and I will overcome death. <laughs> Hallelujah. Son of man, can these bones live? So many of us have some form of death that we could see manifesting in our life right now. Some fruit of death. And we think it's the greatest thing in the whole world. We think it's so tall, it's so big, it's so insurmountable. And it tells us various different things. For some of us, maybe it tells us that God isn't with us. For some of us, maybe it tells us that the promise is void. That God has seen the fruit of death in my life and it's a sign that he's not with us. There's one sign we're living by now, guys. It's the sign of the resurrection. That's the only sign we live by. So if you want to know whether or not God's with you, behold the resurrected Jesus. That's the sign that God is with you, right? And if you see the fruit of death in your life, whether it be the works of the flesh or whether it be some form of lack, some form of sickness, some form of weakness in your body, the resurrection is the proof God is with you. And the reason he raised Jesus from the dead is so you could once and for all know that God was with you. So that no matter what form of death you saw in your life, your mind would be filled with the promise. And you would view whatever death you saw in your life through the lens of a life that overcomes death. And I promise you, you'll, you'll feel strengthened. There's grace for you in the life of God. There's strength for you in the life of God. Every nutrient that you need to feel peace and love and joy is found in beholding the life of God that He came and brought to you and gave to you as a free gift. It's greater than the death you see. I said it's greater than the death you see. And it's okay if the death you see right now looks so big. Just hear the voice of God right now, son of man, can these bones live? Mm. You can just ask God, you can tell him, Father, I hear you say live, live. I don't want to live by what I see externally. I don't want to look at what I see around me for a sign. We're always looking for signs. There's signs all in here. There's signs out on the road. I like your signs, though, brother. This is not a, a, I'm not speaking against your signs. There's signs everywhere. There's signs out on the road. There's speed limit signs, signs telling us everything. We're the kind of people always looking for a sign. And we're always looking for a sign that we have life. And we're always looking for a sign that God is with us. The problem is we're in a world that's surrounded by death and darkness. And so if we're looking for a sign in this world, we're always going to find a sign telling us one thing you lack. And God knew that. And so 
They said, Elohim, which is Father, Son, and Spirit, we're going to give them a different sign to judge whether or not we're with them and whether or not they have all things that are needed for life and God-likeness. And the sign we're going to give them is our incorruptible life. And we're going to let our incorruptible life swallow death in the flesh, swallow sin in the flesh. And when they want to know whether or not they have life or whether or not we're with them, they'll behold the resurrected Jesus seated at the right hand of God. That's the only sign you want to live by. We're all the time weighing it in our hearts. Do we have life? We're always weighing it in the balance. Are we okay? Is God with me? Is God happy? Do I have life? Do I have what is needed for life? And I don't know if you guys realize that every time we think we don't have what we need for life, do you know the next conclusion we make? God must not be with me. But Paul would come and say, set your affection above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. For you're dead. You're already dead. Do you know the world already took its best shot against you in the person of Jesus? The worst the world can do to you, it already did to you in Christ. Set your affection on high where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. For what does he say? For your life is hid in him. That's where your life is. If your life is in Christ, don't look in the world for it. And the world is all the time trying to convince you to look in the world for your life. What do you see? Where's your life? Whose life do you have? <laughs> I remember one time I was lamenting about my life and my horrible circumstances and all this fruit I couldn't get rid of even though I wanted to, and I tried, and I tried, and I tried, and I tried. And I remember God coming and asked me, one, well, Greg, whose life do you have? And I was confounded. Because it was like one of those trick question things. Because I was clearly living as if the world was the father of my life. Because that's where I was looking to find the word about my life and, whether, and find evidence about whether I had life or not. I was looking in the world. But if his life is my life, and if he's the father of my life, if I've been born from above, if my life has been born from above, then where am I going to look to find the evidence of whether I have life or not? Am I going to look here or am I going to look there? And God has mercy on us because he knows it's not like we're just walking around with nothing trying to convince us our life is here. This whole world is trying to convince us our life is held here. That's the temptation of the serpent. He's trying to get you to identify with the life you see in the world in the life you say you have from the world. Because if you identify with the life you see in the world, if you identify with the life you have in the world, if you look at the weakness you see in your body and the weakness you see in your life, and you identify with that weakness, if you say, I'm one body, I'm one flesh with this weakness, I'm one with this body of death, if you say that, listen, you're going to be filled with sorrow and torment and fear. And you're going to put your dead flesh to work to try to produce life. Well, guess what? Your works don't have life in it. There's a reason why Jesus didn't come off the cross as the Son of Man. He knew that there wasn't life in that dying flesh. 
Even if I come off the cross, what do I gain? Life is in the Father. Life is on the other side of me shedding this dying body and being raised out of the great and glorified immortal flesh. He didn't consider the weakness in his body. He considered the Father and the life he shared with the Father from the beginning. Everything in this world wants you to consider the weakness you see in your body and the weakness you see in your life. Everything in this world wants you to consider that. But Paul come and said that Abraham didn't consider the deadness in his body or the deadness in Sarah's womb, but he considered the father in the father's life. Your life has come from the father. And so when you think about your life, think about who your father is. Jesus said, call no man in earth your father, for you have one father in heaven. Now that doesn't mean you don't have an earthly dad, an earthly papa that has raised you, but he's talking about identifying with your life. When you think about the life you have, don't look at the life you have from your earthly father. Look at the life you have from Abba. You see? You see that? Son of man, can these bones live? (laughs) God's like, let's see. Let's see. God's into the persuading business. God don't tell you something to believe and then leave you to sort out believing it. That's not how faith works. The word faith is actually a noun. And you know what the word faith actually means? To persuade someone else of something. And so God is in the business of persuading you of the truth. And he doesn't grow weary of it. He doesn't grow tired of it. He wants nothing more to convince you of what he's done to separate you from the death in the world and to divorce you from the weakness and the body of death that's in this world and to make you one flesh with him through the body of Christ. And he wakes up every day, if we want to use, allow me human language, he wakes up every day, he lives and moves and has his being to come and persuade you that you're one body with him in his indestructible life through the death and resurrection of Jesus. He gets that smile on his face. Where are they at? (laughs) He knows the effect of the death in the world. And he knows that death is coming to your door every day to point at it and to try to uncover your nakedness. He knows it's coming, right? And you know, he came. He came with the lamb he provided. Just like Abraham said, God will provide himself a lamb. God will provide himself as the lamb that will remove or cause the death that's in this world to pass over you. That's why it's called the Passover lamb. God has come to sup with you in your house. You are the temple of the living God. And the reason he has come to sup with you in your house is so that he can hulk out like I hulk out inside of you with the power of his life. And in him hulking out inside of you with the power of his life, he will cause the death in this world to pass over you. And what happens is, is your conscience becomes cleansed from the death that's in the world. That's what it means for your conscience to be cleansed from sin. Brothers and sisters, the scripture says the wages of sin is death. Sin and death are synonymous. When it talks about our conscience being cleansed from sin, sin in those scriptures is a noun. It's not a verb. It's not talking about your bad behavior. It's talking about the death that entered the world through Adam. And God has come and provided himself a lamb. 
so that he could destroy death in our midst and we could see the weakness in our bodies overcome right in front of our faces so we could see the answer to son of man can these bones live so we could see the answer is yes and what happens is is our conscience becomes stung with life instead of death and our conscience become washed clean from the death and when we see the death in the world we start to see it's passed over us that's not my life Man, tell you what, the gospel is just about God coming to fill your heart with the word of his life, the word of a life that's incorruptible, indestructible, without beginning or end, because he knows the power unto you walking in this earth, free from fear, free from torment, free from weakness, Free from the works of the flesh is for you to be persuaded that his life is your life. Now, that's powerful what you said. I can't even repeat it. What you said about eternal life is always now or something. Man, that, that's a powerful thing that you said there, brother. That thought is outside of time. That's the kind of thought that's, that comes out when you're busy looking into the heaven and you see you have the keys of heaven and heaven's been opened to you, and you see the house of God clearly, and you see that man ain't a lapdog in the yard in heaven, but man is seated at the right hand of God. And you see that God's the one that prepared the place for man. God's not like, well, I'll let you in if you, you, know, you clean up a bit. You know, go get some groceries, bring some groceries to the house, and stick them in the refrigerator. If you make me breakfast and lunch and dinner, then you can come in the house. No, when you see that's the son of man, like Stephen said, I see the Son of Man. Do you see what Stephen was saying? Death was at Stephen's doorstep. They picked up stones to take his life. And what did he say? My life is no longer but dust. My life is no longer braided together with the corruption in this world. Though you might take the life that I have in this world, my life is hid in the Son of Man. And so his heart was kept from the fear. And fear was far removed from him. And in his heart was filled with love for the people that wanted to take his life. The Father gave birth to Himself in Stephen. Yes. <laughs> I remember I thought I was a lap dog out in the yard. You know, like we had a husky that was wild and tore stuff up, so he was out in the yard. And we had a, a, one of those igloos, you know, because it's hot in Louisiana, and he's a Siberian husky. He don't like the heat. So we got one of those dog glues. That's what it's called, dog glue. I remember when I was a teenager struggling. Some of you that were here last night heard about some of my struggles. I thought I was like the dog out in the yard. And then I thought maybe I'm the court jester, <laughs> right? Maybe God will let me into the court and I'll perform, you know? I'll show them all my tricks. I'll show them how good I am at producing good fruit, right? If I can show them how good I am at producing good fruit, maybe he'll let me be a jester in the court. And then one day, he didn't say, son of man, can these bones live? But he said, son of man, what do you see in my house? You know what I saw? I saw a human being seated at the right hand of the father. That's right. And then I saw that that means a human belongs seated in the Godhead. Yeah. And then I looked at myself and I was like, by golly, I'm a human. <laughs> <laughs> that means... I belong up in there. 
And I know the veil was torn when Jesus said, it, it is finished. I know the cherubims that marked off the weight of the tree of life had been removed and I could have always walked in, but it was like in that moment when I saw there was a human being sitting at the right hand of God and that the reason the human being was sitting there was because that's where God wanted him to be. That God came and picked him up out of the grave and filled him with the wine of his life and made a place for him to dwell with him for all eternity. And the reason he did that is because he wanted me to dwell with him for all eternity. I thought, hallelujah. I'm no longer looking in the window like a dog outside. Can I come in maybe? I'm like, that's where I belong. And then I realize it's not just where I belong, but I realize that when I get in there, God prepared the table for me. Isn't that what Psalm 23 says? You prepare a table for me. We all busy trying to prepare a table for God. And we think he wants us to prepare a table for him. I don't know if you guys realize it, but he's God and he don't need nothing. He has everything. What he wants is you to let him prepare a table for you. One of the hardest things for human beings to do, we all talk about what does God want us to do? What does God want us to do? Let me do something for God. Well, none of us want to do what God wants you to do because God wants you to let him serve you. And the moment you hear that, what? I remember the first time I said that, I'm like, looking around, is lightning going to strike? <laughs> because your heart becomes persuaded before your head catches up. You say it out loud and you're like, I don't know, does that sound right? <laughs> and it is right. And it does sound right. Right? So God's prepared you a table, hallelujah. All right. That has nothing to do with the message. I'm so sorry. In my church, they come up with a funny saying for it, the message before the message. And then I, 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 am, I do want to honor you guys, though. I have this thing in my church, and I don't want to set up rules in your church, so you can rebuke me. But um, what I tell the people at my church is I understand if uh, at some point you've had all you can stands and you can't stands no more. And if you've got, you got to get up and go because you've had enough, man, I will bow my head to you in respect and be thankful for the time that you shared with me because you're the one that's valuable here, right? I'm not here so you can help me to feel valuable. That's not why I'm here. And so if a point comes where you've had enough and you've got to go, man, I am not thinking, why are they leaving? And I'm not thinking, they must not love the Lord then. <laughs> and neither is God thinking that. Right? So I don't want to, do you want me to scrap the message? I don't want, I don't feel that I want to scrap some of what I had to say at least. Maybe it'll be abrupt. Um, maybe it'll be, a, the ending will be abrupt and I'll have to compact it. But I, I just want to say how thankful I am for this church. Um, and, for, and when I say the church, I don't mean like this building. I mean like this group of believers here. I want to say how thankful I am for all you guys. Um, and the word that's coming out of this place, right? Because all you guys coming together is having something in the word that God is bringing forth out of this place, right? And I, I see it and I recognize it, and it makes me happy to know that there's a body of believers like this in the world. And I just want to say how thankful I am for, for you guys, right? I, I think there's a verse, and Buell maybe could correct me if I'm wrong, where it says that, that Jesus wept because he saw that the people were without a shepherd. And, man, I can just see Jesus isn't weeping anymore because, man, you guys are shepherding people into the truth. 
right? You guys are shepherding people into the one true shepherd, which is the Father, right? The shepherd and bishop of our souls. And I could just see Jesus smiling about that. So, man, thank you guys so much. It's no small thing. I, don't, I know sometimes you can get caught up in ministry. It's no small thing what you guys are doing. It's a blessing, man. How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel that brings peace. So, man, I bow my head to you guys. Thank you so much. And I hope you know that just as Jesus stood up in honor of Stephen, man, he's standing in honor of you guys pointing people to him. And so thank you so much. Thank you so much for that. Oh, I got to... I gotta unfreeze my. I gotta make it to it won't freeze. You guys, forgive me for one second. Amen. Amen to that. Um, we'll just pray. Thank you, Father, for being here with us. And I know you're not looking for us to thank you for that. I know you were here of your own heart and your own desire. But thank you for being here with us to discern our lives for us so that we can walk out of the shadows of the carnal mind and we can walk in the light um, of your life. Thank you, Father. Glory to God. Um, we talked some of this, about some of this last night, but, but Jesus is God on the cross discerning our lives for us. He's God on the cross discerning our lives for us. You know, we, we all know the, the, the verse in Jeremiah where it says the, the heart of man is uh, exceedingly deceitful and abundantly wicked. And what we thought about that was that the heart of man is like an ugly, disgusting thing. They're just disgusting. And we got to do something about the disgustingness of that heart. And we, we don't weigh that, that verse in the balance. But, you know, it says David is a man after God's own heart. Well, that was before the cross. Also says Abraham's a friend of God. And so when Jeremiah, when you look at that in the Hebrew, when Jeremiah says that the heart of man is deceitful and is full of wickedness, that word wickedness means to be filled with laboring and toiling. And so what Jeremiah is trying to say is that man's heart is filled with laboring and toiling. And man thinks that's the right way. All of us think that it's good to have the fruit of God's life, don't we? All of us agree with that, don't we? And if we don't have it, we think that's bad, don't we? And so then the way that seems right to us is we got to get it. We got to produce it. That seems like the right way. And in fact, I've been preaching grace for a long time now, since 96. And when I preach the grace, you know why people reject it? They reject it because they think we need to be fruitful. Well, how do you think you're going to be fruitful? By your own strength or by God's? The grace message isn't about how you won't be fruitful. It's, by, it's about how the fruit won't be by your doing. <laughs> you bear the fruit. You don't produce the fruit. And so what Jeremiah is, what the, the prophet Jeremiah is saying on behalf of God is that man's heart is filled with laboring and toiling, and man thinks that's the right way. And I don't know if you guys realize it, but man was not created to discern their own heart. I'm so sorry. Because I know we think we're masters at discerning our own heart. We need God to discern the way unto life for us. When he made Adam, he had to come and discern the way that was unto life. It's not that tree of knowledge of good and evil, Adam. I know you think the fruit on that tree is good. I know you think it looks wise. I know you think it looks right for you to think you're going to clothe yourself with life. But that's not the way unto life. And so what Jeremiah is saying is that God came and discerned our hearts for us. And what he did was he came to show us that the way we think unto life is actually the way that's unto death. 
the way that we think is right unto life is actually serving us with destruction. That's why Jeremiah says, cursed is the man that makes flesh his arm. He discerns that's the way we think is right. I'm going to put my strength, my works to the grindstone, and through my own ability, I'm going to produce life. Jeremiah comes and discerns that way for us. And he says, listen, man, if you try to trust in your own works for life, that's going to bring a curse upon you. He goes on to say, blessed is the man whose trust is in the Lord to produce his fruit in them. See how he's discerning the heart? Discerning the thoughts and the tents of the heart. Well, that's what God was doing with us on the cross. Jesus is God on the cross discerning our hearts. It's the Father gathering us to Himself, trying to explain the way that's unto life to us because the, the way we thought was unto life was killing us. It's like a father. If a father has a young child and the child is all the time playing around the fire and the, the child thinks the fire looks cool. What was it, Beavis and Butthead? Fire, fire. <laughs> you guys have to forgive me. I don't know where this stuff comes from. I ask God all the time to deliver me. So, so just be believing with me. <laughs> but you know, when you're little, the fire looks cool, man. And so imagine a father that has a child all the time playing around the fire. And the father keeps trying to tell the child that the fire will hurt them. But the child's got no reference point for the fire because it's never been burned before. And so it doesn't understand what the father's saying. It doesn't comprehend that the fire will burn them. So the child keeps trying to get by the fire, keeps trying to get by the fire. And the father's thinking, listen, they're not getting it. And if I'm not careful, they're going to go get in the fire. And I'm not going to be around the whole time. I'm going to be hot in the house getting stuff. And so finally, what the father does, out of his great love for the child, he says the only way this child's going to understand what that fire will do to them is if I put my hand in the fire myself. And I let that fire burn up my arm right in front of them. And they see my skin crackle. And they see the pain that comes to me. Then they'll see that the way that's unto life is not by putting your hand in the fire. And the way that's unto death is to put your hand in the fire. And so Jesus is everlasting Father. And there we were thinking the way unto life was to try to have life by our own works. But that was serving us with death. And the Father spent the whole Old Testament telling us. And we couldn't get it. We kept trusting in our own works. I mean, He led Israel out of Egypt. He gave them manna from heaven. He brought forth water out of a rock. He split the Red Sea. He caused death to pass over them. He did all, he, a pillar of fire by night, a cloud by day. He tabernacled with them and they still cried out for the flesh. They still couldn't get it. So just like the father in the example I told with the campfire, what God did was the only way these guys are going to understand that the way they think is unto life is unto death is if I take the wages of their sin into myself and they see what it produces. It's not the wages of your bad behavior is death. That's not what the scripture means. It's the wages of you trusting in your own strength for life is death. That's right. Amen. And we were trusting in our own strength for life. Adam was trying to clothe himself instead of asking, Father, clothe me with your life. 
And Adam couldn't see that was the way unto death. Mankind couldn't see that was killing us. And so Jesus, he's God on the cross. He's the father trying to reason with us. And do you know what he does? He takes the wages of us trusting in our own works into himself so we can see what it produces in him. The way you think unto life, this is what it does. This is what it's giving you. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1 that God made foolish the wisdom of the world. He says he did it at the cross. And what does it say that the wisdom of the world is? That it's the strong according to the flesh, the noble according to the flesh, the wise according to the flesh. Because that's what we think looks like blessing, isn't it? A life that looks real pretty on the outside, whitewashed sepulchres. You know how God made it look foolish? He showed us what it really gives you, trusting in the strength in your flesh. He shows us what it really gives you. Here's what it gives you. The thing you're after, you think that the thing you think will be the seal of the deal on your life, the thing you think that's a sign that you're blessed, the thing you're lusting after to try to believe you have life, the thing you're lusting after to try to have peace and love and joy, this is what it gives. You start thinking about the cross like that, you ain't going to need to try to repent. <laughs> I promise you, there's something in you that tells you to run from death. I mean, I watch Seinfeld a lot. It makes me laugh, right? It's okay if you judge me. Like Paul said, yay, it matters not if you judge me, for I judge not myself. <laughs> but there's one Seinfeld where, where George is at a, a, a children's party. And somebody yells fire. And he knocks all the women and children out of the way to get out that door. Nobody had to tell him to do that. He heard that word fire and his heart ran from death. He naturally ran from it. Brothers and sisters, you will naturally run from that which produces death if you can see clearly what it is that produces death. And God has entered into that which produces death so we could see it clearly. But we've never been taught these things. No one taught me. I didn't read what I just said in a book. But I tell you what, once the Father started showing me that, my heart ran from that which brought death. <laughs> Does that make any sense? You guys see what I'm saying? Glory to God. And so the gospel is God himself giving you a word of wisdom. That's what it is. We have the gifts of the spirit. Well, whose spirit do you think it is? It's God's. When we talk about giving each other words of wisdom, words of knowledge, well, glory to God. Yeah, we're the image and likeness of our dad. And so he first gave us a word of wisdom or a word of knowledge about our lives. He first did that. And that's what the gospel is. Him coming to give us a word of knowledge about our lives, him coming to discern our lives for us and not just our lives, but our lives with him because we had made some conclusions about our history that wasn't right. You know what I'm saying? Like we got history with God. You ever heard that said? Like a, a, a woman will say, I got history with him or the man, we got history together, right? She bore my children. <laughs> we got history. You got more than history, man. <laughs> Let me be the first to tell you if you don't know, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Uh, 
And so God came to discern our history for us. You guys know the, the Christmas Carol movie? Is that with Scrooge? Okay, I thought it was. But remember how Scrooge had made all these conclusions about his life and how he was filled with bitterness over it? You remember that? And you remember how then the ghosts of Christmas present, the ghosts of Christmas past, and the ghosts of Christmas future came to him to show him his life, discern his life for him? Remember how the ghosts of Christmas past took him back and showed him things that he was present at, that he had made conclusions about that were lies? Remember how it took him back and said, no, 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 this is what really happened. And so the gospel is God doing that. It's him coming to discern our lives. It's him coming to give us a word of knowledge. You see, because the carnal mind was discerning our lives. The carnal mind was telling us our history about God. The carnal mind was telling us about our life and our life with God. And we think we got history with God. And we didn't, when we say that, we do not think it's pleasant. I mean, when people say, oh, we got history together, it's never a positive thing. You know, right? You don't say it that way when it's a positive thing. If you got history with somebody and it's positive, you say, I love them. <laughs> they love me. <laughs> like when I talk about my wife, I don't say we got history together. <laughs> no, I say she loves me. I love her. Well, you see, the carnal mind had come and discerned our history with God. Well, Paul comes and says in Romans 8 that the carnal mind can't comprehend God. And you know what that means? It means the carnal mind cannot see the heart of God. It can't comprehend the love that's in God's heart for them. It can't see it. Do you know why it can't see it? Because it judges God and whether or not they're beautiful to God by the death they see in the world. And if the place you're reasoning from about whether or not God is happy with you is the death you see in the world, you ain't never going to know God. Because the only way you're going to know God is by beholding the light that he manifested in the person Jesus. That's why it says a great light has shined in the midst of those who were in darkness. You know, when you're in darkness, you can't see. Well, it says, yea, though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Death is a shadow. The darkness in the scriptures is referencing death. And so we, the reason we were walking in darkness is because we were judging God by the death we saw. And we were judging what God thought of us by the death we saw. And so Paul also says that the carnal mind is enmity against God. Enmity against God. You know what that means? It means the carnal mind's thoughts are in opposition to God's own thoughts. So the carnal mind will think one thing, but God's thinking the opposite. And you see this dynamic in Adam. After he ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he had the carnal mind. Because he saw death, and then death fathered the carnal mind in him. And then he began judging himself and God by the death he saw. And you know what the carnal mind told Adam? You've been orphaned, Adam. God's embarrassed and ashamed of you because of your nakedness, because of your sin. He's left you here all alone as an orphan needing to care for your own life. You need to care for your own life. That's what the carnal mind told Adam. And even should God come for you, he's coming to smite you. That's what the carnal mind said. But the carnal mind is in opposition to the mind of Christ. It's in opposition to God's own mind. And you might be thinking, well, how do you know that? Well, we know that because God showed up. And what did he do? Did he smite Adam? No, he clothed him. He clothed him. (laughs) You know why he clothed him? Because he loved this man. I love this man. You see that? 
Ezekiel chapter 16. I'm sorry, we, this is where we're, we're trying to go. If it ends abruptly, I promise you, you already got something that will bless you. And I like this brother sets me up real good. I love how he does that. Even if you don't know, you did. <laughs> That's right. That's like my get out of jail free card, right? You can't say that you weren't blessed because you're blessed whether you know it or not. <laughs> Thank you, brother. You brought me freedom. <laughs> oh, glory God. Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 6. That's why it's so awesome how you, you said uh, you played rattle, live, live. And when I passed by thee, this is God talking through Ezekiel. He's talking about when he walked by us. And when I passed by thee and saw thee polluted in thy own blood, I said unto thee, when thou wast in thy blood, live. Yea, I said unto thee, when thou wast in thy blood, live. Notice he's making a point. When you were in your blood, this is when I said it. That's going to come into being critical. Right? I have caused thee to multiply as the bud of the field, and thou hast increased in waxen great, and thou art come to excellent ornaments. Thy breasts are fashioned, and thy hair is grown, whereas thou was naked and bare. Now when I passed by thee and looked upon thee, behold, thy time was the time of love, and I spread my skirt over thee and covered thy nakedness. Yea, I swear unto thee, and entered into a covenant with thee, saith the Lord, and thou becamest mine. He's talking about what he did when he saw them polluted in their own blood. And he talks about what he felt for them when he saw them polluted in their own blood. And he mentions the covenant. Guys, we've got a perverted view of covenant, right? We've been taught covenant like it's a contract. And then we try to convince ourselves God will be good to us because we have a contract, don't you know? But I think it's this brother Rick here. We were talking about that. And he said, you know, the reason why I have a contract is because neither party trusts the other party. <laughs> And the reason why we've explained covenant in the sense of a contract is because we didn't trust God. <laughs> but that's not what the word covenant means in Hebrew. The word covenant in Hebrew means to vow a vow. It means to make a promise. That's what it means. And so God's saying, I vowed a vow to you. Notice how it didn't say he asked for a vow from us. I vowed a vow to you when you were in your blood. I made a promise to you when you were in your blood. I just got to be honest, and maybe all men don't feel this way. When I was marrying my wife, I just got to be honest, I didn't really care if she made any vow to me. I was so enamored with that woman that I would just vow my life to her, and I couldn't have cared less if she made any vow back to me. Because I was not thinking about how this woman was going to serve me with her life. I was busy thinking how I'm going to spend all the days of my life serving her. And I just wanted to tell her about that. I didn't care what she said back. Just say, I do. Just say, I'll let you serve you, me with your life all the days of your life, which is all God's saying that he wants here. He's not asking for a vow back. He's saying, I come and made a vow to you. And if you want to give me something back, just tell me you'll let me serve you all the days of my life. Yeah. Just tell me you'll let me love you with all my heart, with all my soul, with all my strength for all of my life. He's living for a long time, don't you know? And he's thinking that if he's living all those years, he wants you to be living all those years. And so he vows a vow to you. Now, when it says, when Ezekiel says we're, we were polluted in our blood, and when the scriptures say that we were polluted in our blood, what it means is that we were joined with death. That's what blood is. It's a sign of death. 
And so when it says we were polluted in our blood, it's the same as saying we were dead in sin, or we were one flesh with sin in the body of death that sin built us. We were one flesh with death. To use Brother Rick's uh, language from the previous Sunday, we were one flesh with the old man. The old man is the man that was dying. So we were in union in a marriage, if you want to use that language, with the old man. And we were in our blood. That's where we were at. If you want a, a good picture of what it means to be in our blood when God walked by us, behold Jesus on the cross. That's what, that's what we looked like to God. When God said it's the time of love, when God walked by us and said, behold, I saw you polluted in your blood, and my heart said it was the time of love, you want to know what you looked like in your eyes? Boom! So how did we get polluted in our blood? I mean, God made a vow to us. If you go back in Genesis, I think I've said this a million times, but maybe some of you hadn't heard it, just to develop a picture. When Genesis said God blessed mankind, or blessed Adam, Adam means mankind. And so when God blessed Adam, he was blessing mankind. And when you look at that in the Hebrew, that Hebrew word means to get down on one knee in adoration of another. You know like men do when they're going to propose? They get down on one knee in adoration of the woman they're going to vow to or propose to. That, God did that in Genesis with Adam. He got down on one knee because when he saw Adam, he was like, wow, man. This is it. He made all the creatures, didn't he? He made everything before Adam, but he didn't find anything that was like him. He didn't see anything that looked like him. He didn't see anything that he could spend all his days sharing his life with. He didn't see anyone that could feel what he feels, that could know what it's like to feel his love, that could know what it's like to share in his love. He didn't find anyone like that when he made the animals, when he made the trees. And then he made Adam. And he said, he looks like me. And he gets down on one knee. And he vowed a vow to Adam. And he promised Adam, I promise you, we write it in English that God told Adam to be fruitful. No, no, no. God promised Adam he would make Adam fruitful. And you see that when you look at Abraham. God promised Abraham that he would make Abraham fruitful. He didn't tell Abraham to make himself fruitful. And in fact, Abraham thought that God wanted him to make himself fruitful. And then he had an Ishmael. And God's like, this guy doesn't understand. But it's okay, right? Because I am long-suffering not willing to let Abraham perish because he's my friend. And so I will keep persuading him that I am El Shaddai and that his sufficiency to be exceedingly fruitful is found in me and my grace and not in the strength of his hand. Right? So that's what God did. He made a vow to us back in Genesis. He promised to spread his skirt over us. That's marriage language. It means to sp spread your life, to hedge the one you want to be joined to about with your life. That's what it meant. He promised to decorate mankind with his life. That's what he promised to do. You know, when I do weddings, one of the things I do, I do strange weddings because um, I don't do it in the traditional sense. But whenever we get to the part where the husband and the wife say their vows to each other, that's not the end of the vows because then I tell them God's vow to them. Because God's made a vow to them, and that's actually the power unto their marriage being held together. 
It's actually the power unto them being able to love one another. It's for them to see the Father's love for them and for them to be put to rest by God's love for each one of them. That's the only way they'll be able to give themselves over into one another's arms. You can't give yourself over into someone's arms unless you're fully persuaded your life will be cared for. It's like we think God's upset with us if we don't give ourselves over to Him. God's not stupid. He knows you ain't going to do that unless you're persuaded. And He's happy to persuade you. When I saw Becky walking down the stairs, man, I had no problem convincing this woman that she'd be best off with me. And it was not grievous. I wasn't like, when's this woman going to believe? My goodness, I'm getting tired. I wasn't going home angry if she wasn't persuaded yet. The joy was in persuading. God's not impatient with the romancing. He likes it. (laughs) Hallelujah. So God made a vow to mankind. But we committed adultery on God. All right, we did. And that doesn't mean we went and had physical relations with someone, but we fornicated adultery in the Old Testament scriptures. You ever wondered why it says Israel committed adultery on God? What it means to commit adultery? What the woman caught in adultery is actually trying to convey to us? Because that was a Jewish woman. And what it's trying to convey about all us? To commit adultery on God means that you're fornicating with the strength of your own hand trying to produce fruit. Instead of being intimate with Him and bearing His fruit. Your intimacy isn't with the spirit of his grace. Your intimacy is with the strength of your own hand. And you're trying to fornicate with your own strength to produce God's fruit. That's what it means to commit adultery on God. (laughs) That's what man did. Now, listen, the fruit of fornicating with your own works to have life, guess what the fruit of that is? Death. So when we fornicate it with our own works and we fornicate it with our own strength, we committed adultery on God and we became joined together with death. The old man who's one with death. We were joined with the old man who was one with death. That's when God walked by us and we were polluted in our blood. That's what it means. We were in our blood. He walked by us when we were one flesh with death. Now, according to the carnal mind, God can't look at man in their sin, can he? Or Ezekiel saying, God walked by us when we were in our sin, and his heart told him, it's the time for love. I'm just reading what that verse says. I'm just saying, that's what it says. (laughs) I'm sorry to tell you these things. I'm not really... But you don't have to understand, when God told me these things, I was angry at first. And so I understand that, and maybe it's none of you, but maybe somebody watching online, maybe is hearing some of this stuff for the first time and they feel angry at what I'm saying. Or it's subverting them. That's what the scripture says. God walked by us when we were one flesh with death. And his heart said, it's the time for love. He walked by us and he saw all the fruit in our life was the fruit of death. He saw we were barren and unfruitful in his life. And he saw us in our barrenness, and his desire was unto us. His desire was to be married to us. He couldn't deny himself. He couldn't deny the love he felt in his heart for us. I'm just a man, and there's nothing my wife could do to make me leave her. 
nothing. I'm just a man. I don't have an end now, but I had a beginning. Now, how much greater God? Our sin and our death could not convince him to walk away. He couldn't abandon the passion for us. He couldn't deny the love he felt in his heart for us. He couldn't deny that even though he saw us polluted in our blood, he wanted to be one flesh with us. He wanted to be one body with us. Because remember, he got down on one knee. He remembers. You think, you think God, God, the creator of all things, got down on one knee and proposed to us? And you think he's going to let death steal his, his woman, his Eve? Sorry, guys. Don't turn it into a sex thing. You think he's going to let death steal his Eve? We're talking about God. No way. God comes to get down. There's not a lot of, listen, I used to be rowdy, and I don't fight for anything anymore, and someone could smack me upside the cheek, and I'll turn and give them the other one now. But someone messes with my wife or tries to take my wife from me, they're going to find out real quick that I'm from the murder cap of the world, and we're rowdy, rowdy. <laughs> and they're going to find out real quick how I grew up getting down, that down the road from where I lived was a green box that said, thou shalt not kill. <laughs> How much more God when death comes looking to steal his Eve? How much more? So God sees us when we're one flesh with death, and he wants to be joined with us. But there's a problem. There's a problem. We weren't available. We were joined to another husband. <laughs> and so we weren't free to be joined to him. Because we were one flesh with death. We were already one flesh with the old man who was dying. Amen. And so he's got a serious problem here. So he wants to be one flesh with us, but we're kept by what Paul calls the law of our husband. Right. In Romans 7, when Paul talks about the law of our husband, Romans 7 says, A woman is kept by the law of her husband as long as her husband is alive. But if her husband is dead, then she is free to be married to another. And so God's like, these guys are kept by the law of their husband, and they're not free to be joined with me. But God is relentless in his pursuit. He's jealous over us with a godly jealousy. He couldn't let us go. He couldn't forget about us. He, his mind couldn't stop thinking of us. He couldn't stop thinking of the garden when he saw us when he was looking for a friend, when he was looking for someone to love, when God's walking through the garden, making creation, looking for someone to love, I can hear the queen song in the heavens. Find me somebody to love. Find me somebody to love. Somebody, somebody, somebody. <laughs> I was walking through a casino hotel one day because the, 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 they had a hotel on the water and that song was playing. And I was just walking through there and all of a sudden I heard God say, that's what I was singing when I was making creation. And I was like, what? What? You start knowing the love of God when you see these things. So God couldn't shake us from our mind. He was jealous over our lives. He knew there was no one that would love us like he would. 
He knew there was no one who would lay down their lives for ours but him. In fact, he saw death was beating and bruising us. The husband we had when we were one flesh with death was beating us and bruising us and leaving us in our blood. It was an abusive husband. It was not a good husband. And so he saw the abuse we were suffering at the hands of death. He saw the loneliness that we felt on account of our union to death. He saw that we were sitting in the darkness, confused and alone and afraid. And when he saw us sitting there all alone, it was too much for him to bear. As the psalmist says, even should I make my bed with hell, you are with me there, O Lord. That's in the Bible. And just to give some, some, some people some understanding, the word hell there means death, death, the place of the dead. It means the grave. That's what Sheol in Hebrew means, the place of the dead. Though I be polluted in my blood, you have made your bed with me there, O Lord. Though I'm polluted in my blood, you have come to me with, to be with me there, O Lord. And what's he come there to be for? We're going to get to that in a second. But we haven't really understood what's in God's heart when he found us in our sin. We haven't understood what he felt. God feels things. You know why you feel things? Because God feels things. You know why I preach like this? Because I've seen what God felt. And I felt it with him. And I know what he felt. And there's a consuming fire in me. And the consuming fire is the love of God. And when I preach, that's what comes out. The consuming fire. And so we hadn't really thought or understood what was in God's heart when he found us in our sin. And he, him and I were talking about this one day. And I was trying to get a picture of what he felt because we think God, we, we have such a lofty thought about God. He's so far away from us that he could never feel anything like we do. He could never experience anything like us. And I remember he said, Greg, you want to know how I felt when I saw you when I saw my man in their sin, I'm going to try not to cry. He said, imagine you come home one night. And when you pull up to your house, when you're getting close to your house, you see sirens everywhere. And you're not sure yet that it's your house. But you're pulling up there. And you're getting closer. And you see there's police cars all down the road, sirens going. And you get closer and you see there's fire trucks and sirens going. And then you get closer and you see your house is on fire. And then you, you, you know, you're freaking out. And so you get out the car, but surely your wife's not in there. And then you get out of the car and you don't see your wife standing nowhere. And then you start walking towards the house with purpose. And then they try to stop you from going in that house. And they tell you there's nothing that can be done. We can't get her out. She's stuck in there. And you know what I felt all of a sudden? I felt like, you guys saw the Hulk come out last night? I felt like I'm about to Hulk out and throw you all out the way because the thought of my sweet little Becky, my sweet little woman, the thought of her being in that house scared and alone and in the darkness and afraid and not having anybody there with her and she's just going to be there in her death by herself and be consumed. Listen, man, that thought was too much for me to bear and I promise you I'm going in there. I don't care if I'm going to die. I'd rather run in there and be able to hold her and die with her than let her die in there alone or to even bear the thought of her being in there alone. 
That's what God felt when He found us dead in sin. The thought of us being alone. We were alone in darkness. We were in outer darkness. We were afraid. We were confused. We were alone. We were dying. And God couldn't bear the thought of us dying alone. And so He entered into our death with us, didn't He? Like I said last night, that's God on the cross. He saw that we were dying in an outer darkness and alone and afraid, thinking no one was with us, that no one loved us, and we're just dying. He saw us there. He saw it was because we ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and he partook of our death with us so that he could be there with us, so he could come and hold us, so we could know that we weren't alone. You're God's Eve. Just like Eve came out of the side of Adam, we came out of the side of Jesus when they pierced his side on the cross. Adam couldn't bear the thought of Eve being alone in death and darkness. It says Adam wasn't deceived. It says Eve was. He wasn't deceived. That means he knew death would come from that tree. I'm telling you guys, Adam and Eve are trying to teach us something about God and us. Yeah. yeah, Adam and Eve are real. Yeah, that really happened. And you could preach Adam and Eve from a lot of different ways. But one of the ways you preach Adam and Eve is by seeing God in Adam and by seeing us in Eve. Amen. And what God did when we had eaten from the death. Paul says God was in Christ on the cross reconciling the world to himself. In Christ, God entered into the darkness of our death in the person of Christ Jesus. And he did it to join himself with us in our death. He came in the likeness of sinful flesh so he could take the old man that was dying, the man we were joined to death through, and so that old man could die in him on the cross. And in that old man dying in him on the cross, guess what? We'd be free from the law of our husband. Free from the law of our husband. It's like a delicate surgery. God had to get it right to sever us from our union to death without us perishing so that we could then be free to be married to him. That's in Romans 7. Go read it. Amen. <laughs> Go read it. I'm telling you what that means right now. Like Brother Rick said last week, if you hadn't heard that message from last week, go and listen to it. The Apostle Paul says in Romans 6 that God divorced us from the sin of Adam and his union to death through the body of Christ. Through the body of Jesus' death and resurrection, God divorced us from Adam and Adam's sin and the death we were joined to in Adam. And he did it so we could be free to be married to another, even the new man, the man who was one flesh with God in his indestructible life. And then we could be joined together with him. And then God could fulfill his vow, the vow he vowed to us in the beginning when he didn't ask for a vow back. Amen. Just let me love you. Let me spend all my days loving you. Let me spend all my days emptying myself for you. That's what gives God a buzz. You want to love God? Let God love you. You know, I don't, my wife does lots of wonderful things for me. I don't care. None of that is what makes me feel loved. You know what makes me feel loved? When my wife knows that she's loved by me. That's right. And she does a lot of things for me. 
But that's not what makes me feel loved. When she's persuaded that I love her, that's when I feel she loves me. That's how God feels loved, when you see that he loves you. And he doesn't leave you to figure it out. He comes to persuade. <laughs> you notice how he takes everything on himself? You see that? You, you see the, the overwhelming theme here? Is this making any sense? I'm going to finish with this. You guys got like five more minutes, or should I wrap it up? This is what it means for God to be our kinsman redeemer, what I just described. This is what the kinsman redeemer in the scriptures is actually talking about. There's a lot that goes into being the kinsman redeemer. We tend to just focus on the Ruth and Boaz story and define it only by that. Well, that's a fine part of the story, and that's part of being the kinsman redeemer. But the kinsman redeemer is about your closest relative. First of all, you have to have your closest relative. I don't want to mess you guys up, but you know who your closest relative is? God. Yeah, Jesus. Jesus is God. <laughs> I know, I'm silly. <laughs> God's your closest relative. You know who God's closest relative is? You. It's not the angels. It's you. It's like we think the angels are some great thing that are above us. I mean, we love the angels because the angels are ministering servants to us. But it's not because they got something that ain't for us. In fact, the scripture says the angels desire to look into what God has given to us. Amen. They want what we got. Yeah. They look at what God Almighty did when he got down on one knee with, to us and when God put a human being in the Godhead and they were like, wow, yeah. man. That's why it says in the Christmas story that the angels said, glory to God in the highest. They were amazed when they saw God put on human flesh. God put on human flesh. They were like, no, 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 it can't be. Michael, come look. I think I see that God just became a human. Michael, come look. I got to be wrong. No, God became a human. What must God think of human if he became one? And that's what messed him up. And humans were dead in their sin when he became one. And he became one because he's our closest relative. And so you, the, the kinsman redeemer is about being the closest relative. It's about uh, the main, the first thing that's mentioned in the scriptures, I think, is to be an avenger of blood. To avenge blood. You know what it means to be an avenger of blood? You avenge the death of your closest relative. You avenge the death of your closest relative. So we have God as our closest relative. We have us in death, polluted in our blood, being beaten and bruised by death, and we're needing our blood to be avenged. And the only one who can avenge our death is our closest relative. And we're also needing to be redeemed from the reproach of our widowhood. The widowhood in that context is talking about our barrenness. Sing thou that we're barren, for your maker is your husband. And so God was in Christ coming as our kinsman redeemer, taking vengeance, not on a human being, taking vengeance on the death that was killing his closest relative, killing his Eve. He avenged our blood by taking vengeance on death at the cross. He took the death that was bullying us and he bullied death and he dealt an eternal death blow to death when he nailed death to the cross in his own body. He was avenging our blood. You want to beat on my Eve? Watch me. 
God became like Popeye. He had all he could stand. He couldn't stand no more. And his life is like spinach. And he come to bruise, to, to bruise the death that was bruising us. It's like the Wyatt Earp movie. Have you guys ever seen Wyatt Earp with Kurt Russell? You know the train scene where he had a guy that he thought was on his team and the guy sold him out to the other people and he called him. And he's all, I'm sorry, Wyatt. I'm sorry. And he's down on his knees. Don't kill me, Wyatt. Don't hurt me. You know what Wyatt says? You tell him I'm coming and I'm bringing hell with me. Listen, man, the Bible, the Revelation says that death is cast into a lake of fire. And so God came as our kinsman redeemer to bring hell to death. To burn it up. Hmm. And God's not just looking to win a fight. He's looking to deal an eternal blow. To bruise them with an eternal blow. Right? God was in Christ taking vengeance on the death that shed the blood of his Eve. That's what he was doing. It says the blood of Abel cries, the blood of Jesus cries out better things than the blood of Abel. I, for all my life, I thought the blood of Abel cried out for vengeance on Cain. I don't know if you guys realize it, but if Cain would have been killed, that wouldn't bring Abel back from the dead. And so that couldn't be justice. It couldn't be vengeance. And so the vengeance, the thing that Abel's blood cried out for, it cried out from justice, from death. And so God took vengeance on death inside of the person of Jesus Christ. And that's why the blood of Jesus cries out better things than the blood of Abel. Because it declares the death of death. It declares vengeance on death. (laughs) The blood ran out of the body of death. The blood ran out of the old man that we were married to death through. So sing ye that we're barren. Rejoice ye that we're barren. Your maker is your husband. The creator of all things is his name. Though you, you were, the fruit you were bearing was all the time the fruit of death because of your union to the man who was dying. You have been divorced from that dying man. Rejoice for you have become one flesh with God in his indestructible life through the body of Christ Jesus. Through the new man who ever lives. Rejoice because he ever lives to make you exceedingly fruitful. He ever lives to serve you with his life. Man, rejoice because you have a certainty of being exceedingly fruitful. Because his seed is not impotent. It's full of an indestructible life. Resurrection of Jesus Christ is God getting down once again on one knee to show you the love he has in his heart for you. It's God once again making a vow to you and to your life. Don't just see a man come out of the grave. See a man come out of the grave, but also see God down on one knee vowing a vow to you, right? Many times when it comes to the proposal of marriage, the question can come up about the person's intentions. What are their intentions towards me? The father can ask the the man, what are your intentions towards my daughter? I don't know if this is a good deal. (laughs) God knows in our heart, we're thinking, what are his intentions towards us? And I promise you, we've been raised up in a world, in a religious system that tells us his intentions aren't good. We don't know if they're good or not. Maybe they are, maybe they're not. 
And so God puts his, ten- his intentions towards you on display in the resurrected man, Jesus. So your hearts can be put to rest by the manner of love you see he has for you. And I walked by you when you were polluted in your blood, and I said, live. Yea, I said, live. <laughs> Thank you, Father. Thank you, Father, that uh, you're not indifferent to the things that can grieve us, that you're not indifferent to our suffering. I just thank you, Father, that you hear our cries to you, that you hear our desire for life, that you hear our longing for life, and that you ever live to satisfy our desire for life, that you ever live not wanting something from us, but desiring to empty yourself into us. Thank you, Father, that everybody that hears this word tonight will walk away and get a revelation of your love for them. They'll walk away and get a revelation of what it means to be one body with an indestructible life. They'll walk away understanding that they've been divorced from the death that's in this world, that their life is no longer just dust, but their life has been born from a heavenly substance, that their life has been born from your body. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Glory to God. Thank you guys for letting me preach for so long. I really wanted to get that out. Thank you so much.